We, we record to the iCloud, Adam taught me, to press that button. Um, and then it comes to me by email and I send it on to Adam and I send it on to Jeff and makes a podcast out of it. And I have no idea what I just said. But Adam tells me it works. There you have it. Welcome, John. Uh, we're in book four, friends. So open it up with me. We get another time frame at the beginning of book four. We think most of book three was years 15, 16, and 17 in his life. Now we're going to hear more about 18 through 27. But remember, they're inclusive. So you take a year off of this. So this is year 17 to 26. All right. We're going to note along the way, he gives us more names now of people that he spent his time with, friends and tutors, or people he was impressed with. Um, and we're going to maybe struggle, but we're going to work our way through the life of his mind, uh, which I think is always a harder read. Maybe some of you are so philosophically oriented that that's the easy read, and the narrative is the difficult read. But I don't think that describes many of us, and it doesn't describe me. So the narrative is always easy and pleasurable. The philosophical thinking, uh, speaking is more difficult, but um, can be very rewarding. So let me read a couple of paragraphs to get us going. Throughout that same time, which was nine years, from the 18th year of my life, clear up to the 27th, age 17 to 26, we were led and leading astray in turn. Our various passions serving as so many confidence tricks played on us and by us. This happened openly through the studies they call fit for a free man. We would say liberal arts <clears throat> and secretly through a counterfeit religion. That's Manichaeism. And we looked at that last week. We were, uh, we were conceited as to the former, that is, liberal arts. We, we were accomplished. We were learning it. We were, we were bragging on it. We, we were delighted in our progress. We were gullible to the latter. We were subjects to it. It fooled us. And fatuously, full of ourselves, whatever we did. Uh, in church ministry, so many exceptions. It's not a great rule. Nonetheless, when you're dealing with junior highs, what you need to say is God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. It's going to work out. Life's not as bad as it feels right now. It's going to work out for you. You are a fine person. You're going to flourish. It's just going to be great. That's how you talk to junior highs. To senior highs, you say something like, you're not that cool. You need to sit down. You need to learn humility. You're not that great. There's for all of us, and in Augustine's time, as he talks about it, there's this conceit, this arrogance, this, hey, I'm making progress. I'm, the, I'm 17 now. I'm the king of the world. And uh, Archie Thompson, our jazz musician, wrote a, a song, and he called it Big Jer, and, uh, after me, and it's on our Jazz Vesper CD. But it's, it swaggers. It struts. It, it's, 
You got to decide if you like that piece or not. And he says, you know, I don't know if this matches you or not. And I, and I said, I hope not. Yeah. But when I was 19, that was it. I walked down the street to that tune in my head. I was immortal and everybody needed to get out of the way. I said this in front of Derek Cannon, who's the head of the music department at Grossmont, a great jazz player and plays with us at Vespers. And he said, so what happened? And I said, reality, <laughs> you know, somewhere between 19 and now, I learned I wasn't the king of the world. Um, and, the, and the swagger got knocked out of me. That's a good thing. We were conceited as to the former, gullible to the latter, full of ourselves. On the one side, we ran after the inanity of public complaint. It's a vacuous thing, but we wanted it. And we went for nothing less than applause in a theater, as if we were performers, we wanted that kind of applause for the wrangling over poetry prizes. This is what we did with our liberal arts education. For literary Olympians, these are metaphors. Uh, we entered into contests, intellectual contests, reciting contests, at which you might be crowned with grass clippings and pageants of pure fodderal and itches and cravings without end. On the other side, we burned for a way to clear all this nasty stuff out of our systems. Really? You're this much conceited? You're this much arrogant? You're this much chasing after acclaims and these vacuous stuff? On the one side. On the other, you're, I don't know, trying to be holy? You're trying to be pure? You're trying to not be this? We burn for a way to clear all this nasty stuff out of our systems. And we brought goodies to those who styled themselves saints and chosen ones so that in the workshops of their paunches, they could craft angels and gods who would set us free. I enacted all this garbage with my friends who were fooled by me and right along with me. It's got two lives here. My liberal arts education, the flourishing of the mind, the the chasing after acclaim, uh, we were good at it. We were, I don't know who he's comparing himself to, but to the general population, he's got himself a Latin classical education now. General population doesn't. And aren't we cool? On the other hand, Manichaeism is saying all the things of the world are vain. They're shallow, they're superficial. You need to, you need to be connected to the spiritual world. The spiritual world of the Manichees was bizarre, just flat out bizarre. Um, with, with Augustine's help and with, we have no Manichean works remaining, I think none from antiquity. We have their descriptions like Augustine is give, giving here. Um, usually, if you will, post-converts, people who have converted out of Manichaeism. So they, they present it in a negative light. It's hard for us to imagine what was the attraction once they describe it because it's so petty, as if people are literally reaching in their pockets and pulling out gods of their own manufacture and saying, this is important, all right? Your liberal arts education isn't, your progress and growing knowledge and human knowledge and classical training are important, but here this little god is important. Well, Manichaeism was bizarre. Um, it was hunted down by the Romans. It was always illegal. There was never a time when Manichaeism was treated neutrally by the empire, in part because it came from Persia and it was always seen as, as uh, foreign 
and undermining of Roman discipline and virtue. Um, next paragraph. They can go ahead and laugh at me, all those insolent people not yet flattened to the earth and smashed to pieces in wholesome fashion by you, my God. So this is what God does. He flattens people to the earth, smashes them to pieces in a wholesome fashion by you, my God. But for my part, I want to plead to my humiliations because they glorify you. I'm exposing now how bad off I was so that you can be glorified. I beg you, let me, through today's memories, memories about 45, he's a bishop, tour the detours of my bygone wrongheadedness and slaughter for you a victim, which is the gift of my rejoicing. I'm offering myself to you like a lamb on an altar. This is what I was. Let this glorify you. For what was myself to myself without you, if not a guide over the edge of the chasm? Or what am I doing well, but a suckling of your milk, enjoying you, the food that doesn't go bad? And who is a human being, anyone at all, as long as he's just a human being as such? Robust, powerful personages can laugh at us in our weakness and poverty. We will testify to you. People are going to read this. And they're going to say, what an idiot kid this guy was. What an immature young adult. What, what, how misguided could this person be? Who's he, who does he think is going to <coughs> fault him for his youth? You got really only two possibilities here. The world or the church. So that those who, pagan, still boast of their classical education, they're going to look at Augustine and say, what is wrong with him? Or the Manichees, to whom he used to be close. I think it's more likely the church. This is a bishop exposing his youth in front of his congregation. Okay, you can get a delightful story or two out of me about my youth. Um, I want to be as honest with you about my life is I want you to be honest with me about your life. Friends, I'm not going into all the details. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sense of love me as you do and love you as I do. I don't know, some category called too much information. Um, when I was young, there was a pastor. It, when I was young, it was, it was part of the, I want to say fad, that's not it, the trend in writings was pastors need to become more vulnerable, self-referential, and um, don't talk about themselves in the third person, but be more transparent to the congregations. Well, there's some good stuff in it. And there's self-referential can be self-serving. That's pretty easy. And uh, so I remember one of the pastors, it was Bruce Thielman, said, yes, be honest that you're a sinner at the table, but don't regurgitate there. Don't regurgitate your life there. It's like, okay, that's, that's, a, that, that's a, a pretty vivid uh, metaphor. I think I'll remember that one. Um, some things are not to come up again like that. But having said that, uh, three weeks ago, a very good friend of mine died, an elder very close to me uh, at the church in Chicago. And 
one of, one of the two most influential people in my youngest daughter's life outside of her own family. Just uh, a, a glorious Christian. He spent years in prison after becoming a Christian for um, uh, kickback schemes in his business and then lying to um, the FBI. That, that's what gets you. Uh, in that church in Chicago with the three pastors, Joanne went to the county jail on Sunday afternoons with women musicians who were symphony musicians and preached and great, great music. That was her jail ministry. John worked with a halfway house for Christian prisoners coming out of prison to get them acclimated back into church and society, and get them jobs and all that. My job was to go visit the members of my congregation who got thrown into jail on my watch. These are not people who convert to Christ in jail, but my members who go to jail. And one, one night, I'm sitting with all the elders, there's 18 elders, and we're talking about this three-part division. This is what the pastors are doing. And, you know, Jesus says, I was in prison. It didn't say I was innocent and in prison, just said I was in prison. And you came and visited me. This, this is how we do this. And, of course, it was curious, like, why are our members going to jail. And I said something glib-like, well, it appears that we perfected the art of the kickback, to which one of the elders said, no, it appears we have not. Right. <laughs> we're, we're getting caught. Um, so when Gordon would talk to teens about the wrong choices of us, and this is somebody I have every confidence in. You know, my daughter's soul is in his hand. Every confidence in him. He's doing exactly the right thing. Here's why I did what I did. Here's why I thought I wouldn't get caught. And here was the moment when I knew it was over. You know, the fear that came over him, this would be public consequence and humiliation the remainder of his life. Well, yes and no. He's a hero to, to most of us in the church and ran one of the largest Christian parachurch organizations uh, in Cook County. So this is what Augustine's doing. He's, he's, is he worried that his, um, his mother has died, but his mother's friends are still around? And, you know, prophet without honor in his own country. This is Monica's boy. He never really amounted to much. Okay, he's our bishop right now. But he never really amounted to much. And then he's going to go over this? Is, I think this is what's on his mind, where others might laugh at us because of our weakness, and poverty, yet I'm going to bear a witness to you. So far, has he borne witness to God or only to his own poverty? What has God done so far? Remainder of the chapter is, here's what God did. Further description, I taught the science of rhetoric, which, is, which was a combination of, this is not just speech, this is philosophy and it's law, it's um. Um, being able to declaim, to proclaim in public, uh, subjected by my own greed. Um, you know, Master, I did prefer to have a good, solid, respectable students. Well, the kind that are called good, solid, respectable at any rate. And with complete scrupulousness, I instructed them in the scams. <clears throat> he thinks he's teaching scams by teaching rhetoric. In Greek literature and culture, 
there is a thing, a phenomenon called sophists, whom the comedians um, poke fun at. And when they want to accuse somebody of something really bad, when they want to accuse Socrates, they'll accuse him of being a sophist. This is a person whose skill is this. They can take the guilty one and convince you of their innocence. And they can take the innocent one and convince you of their guilt. See how good he is? That's sophistry. It's in the rhetorical art, science, craft, the ability to persuade, not the recognition of right and wrong. The Greeks knew the difference. The Romans knew the difference. But culture acts like culture acts. We know the difference. But, yeah. So here's his description. Um, I instructed them in the scamps, not, I mean, equipping them to put the innocent on trial for their lives. Okay, I didn't do that. We didn't go out and bear false witness against the neighbor and throw people in jail just to, just to show we could persuade anybody of anybody. But just to advocate for the guilty once in a while. We knew this was wrong, yet we would defend. God, you saw me from far off, <clears throat> slipping on that slick surface. You saw through thick smoke my good faith sparking, even though, in fact, in working as a teacher, I displayed it for the approval of those showing a dutiful attachment to idiotic self-regard and making an energetic quest for mendacity. In this, I was their confederate. In those years, now this is our first attachment in this, in book four, first attachment. In those years, I had one woman. Not that I had acquired carnal knowledge of her in what's called a lawful union. We didn't marry, but rather my roving heat with no good sense to its name had tracked her down. I don't know. I, 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 I'm not quite sure how to, what that metaphor is. Courtney, you can help me. If you were a modern, this is a heat-seeking missile. Like, she's hot, and my missile just goes in her direction. Okay, that can't be what he's thinking, but, you know, whatever, something like that. But there was only one woman, and I stayed loyal to her bed. In her case, I certainly found out, on the evidence of my own experience, what a gap there is between the sanctioned scope of marriage, a bond contracted for the purpose of producing children, and a deal arising from lustful infatuation, from which progeny is born against the parents' fervent, fervent wishes. But once it's born, it forces them to love it. Well, how would he know? They had a boy. They had a boy. Adiodatus is, uh, 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 what do you say it when you don't want to tell people the ending of a movie? Uh, spoiler alert, uh, he dies when he's 16, but he's a constant companion of Augustus throughout and converts when Augustus converts, when his dad does. I also recollect, uh, so this is the, this is, she'll never be named. I know that some commentators are, Critics will fault Augustine for never naming her like, really? She meant that little to you? You guys hung together for 10, 12 years, something like that? We would say common law marriage, and it was monogamous by all accounts and tender and loving and produced a child, and they were together. She traveled wherever he traveled. They were always together. 
Um, I'm not sure I want to condemn the whole thing, um, but he, um, he will, in this chapter, tell the story of his best friend's death. It's very tender, very tender. It's a remarkable piece of literature, and he'll never give us his name. So this isn't about flick of the wrist, she meant nothing to me. This is somebody who means many things to him, and his best friend who dies means everything to him, all the same period. But naming names is simply not what he's going to do. Now, he's going to give us some names. He's going to give us some names of people he no longer approves of. So he's not trying to protect the righteous here. That's not the move. It's just read your Gospels. Some people are named and some people aren't. And you got to think about what's the writer's purpose in it, is it. And some of that stuff strikes me as a mystery. If you want to know the names of the women in the Gospels, you read Luke's Gospel. And in Luke's Gospel, you're going to get the names of more women because he's getting his information from Mary. Her friends. She knows the names of her friends. And for all I know, Mary is leaning over his shoulder and says, Don't write down two women. Write, write down Joanna and Salami. That's their names. Put their names in there. For all I know, that's the dynamic. All right. So that's person number one. Uh, chapter three. I also recollect that when I had decided to enter a contest for a poetic work to be performed in a theater, some soothsayer or other sent me a message to find out what kind of fee I would pay him to make sure I won. This is what you do. We, we have all these, <clears throat> uh, all of them. we have a many, many, many thousands upon thousands of magic formulas in which apparently money would change hands and people would curse your enemy, bless your friend and you and whatever. Um, this uh, Christian's, going to say never fell for that. From the very beginning, they critique that. Um, uh, but these from, from Egypt, these magical papyri, I mean, what it's telling us is not just simply what we would call their superstitions about this stuff. It's kind of jaw-dropping, but it gives us an insight into what they want. They want children. They want male children more than they want female children. They want somebody to fall in love with them. They want that a lot. And they want the person who didn't fall in love with them to never fall, to make sure nobody else ever fall, fell, falls in love with them. And it's just a bunch of junior high emotional reactions being paid for by adults to have somebody help them accomplish these things. So a soothsayer says, give me some money and um, I can help you win. I replied that I execrated and loathed the disgusting rites to which he alluded, and that I wouldn't let a fly be slaughtered. So he's gonna, he's gonna kill a chicken and, and do something, or um, take a bird and throw its bones and its entrails out in your readings. That's literally augury and whatever. Well, I wouldn't let him, I wouldn't let a fly be slaughtered for the sake of my victory, even if the garland were made of gold, unwithering return. For eternity. Remember, it's made out of grass. <laughs> these, these are leaves you put on your head. He was, you see, going to put death creatures with the breath of life in them. 
put to death creatures with the breath of life in them. And it appeared that by these gifts of honor, he meant to solicit demons' votes for me. But I didn't decline this evil act because of the purity you impart, God of my heart. This is because I didn't know, I who knew nothing, but how to muse about the flashes of mere material things, how to love you. If any soul sighs for such fabrications, doesn't it whore around on you? Like, shouldn't this love be going to you, but it's going to something else uh, that's whoring? Isn't it faithful to what's imaginary? Isn't it grazing a flock of winds? Of course, I said no to a sacrifice to demons to benefit myself, but I sacrificed myself to those demons which the Manichaean, through the Manichaean superstition. What is grazing the winds, if not grazing demons themselves, by which I mean being so wrong that they can find plenty of entertainment making fun out of you? Well, he's already used the metaphor of I'm offering this testimony, me, as a sacrifice on your altar so that you may be glorified. Previously, I was, I don't know, wise enough, cool enough, arrogant enough. I wouldn't take the superstition stuff and sacrifice for that and allow any sacrifice to be made on my behalf, a literal sacrifice to be made on my behalf. But I was sacrificing myself to the Manichaean stuff. Right? Accordingly, I clearly wasn't going to stop consulting openly and in the clear light of day, those clairvoyant con men called astrologers because they made more or less no sacrifices and sent no prayers to any supernatural being for the sake of divination. So they're more rational, yes, but genuine Christian reverence does repudiate and condemn the practice. So I got into astrology. These are smart boys, clairvoyant con men, he calls them. And uh, I read, uh, we're going to, whatever, I'm going to do some workshops or seminars. Uh, I have 11 pieces of literature, short letters, small sermons of people at the time of the Reformation, Beza, uh, Calvin's successor at Geneva. And the plague comes through. And there's problems, there's controversy. He's got people in his church saying, what plague? And he has to say things like, okay, a third of our congregation is dead. What do you mean, what plague? Well, there's no contagion. This is sent from God. And so what's the point of running away? If he's got your number, he's got your number. And Beza has to say, well, here's what the Bible says about the wrath of God. Run away. You know, save yourself. And... Providence is big, not always name-specific. A lot of theological, you know, welcome to the 16th century. They're going to deal with this theologically. But part of what I, what I want to say is, in the middle of it, I love Beza. In the middle of it, he says, and some people consult the stars on this. Well, maybe they're right about that. I'm not sure. Probably partly, partially right. And then he moves on. And I want to say, what do you mean partially right? You know, you're in the 16th century. You, you, you know, you got it. I thought we moved on by then. Well, not necessarily. Do the stars, do heavenly bodies have any influence on our lives? 
Boys and girls? Yay or nay? Okay, you think it's a trick question, so let me, <laughs> so let me give you a trick answer. Where do you think the light comes from? A heavenly body. Where do you think light at night comes from? The moon. Uh, you think the moon doesn't control the tides? So whether there's a lot or a little water, the heavenly bodies have influence on earth. What kind of influence? The, you know, the predictive, you're a Capricorn, and therefore you should marry a, I don't know, you should marry a doctor. That's what you should marry. <laughs> but, you, you know, it, this stuff. Um, yes, nobody's ever asked me this opinion, but a couple of times I've given it a sermon. I would prefer the members of my congregation not to read their horoscope. People are making that stuff up, and it just ain't so. Yeah? We were given a Bible. Read your Bible in the morning, not your horoscope. It's a division. All right. Divination. Um, I, but I will say, a sermon a few years ago, six, seven years ago, I somehow the illustration was palm reading. It was about Paul and the soothsayers in the book of Acts. And, you know, we see that today in Ouija boards and palm reading and all that. And I just said, that's somebody else's religion. We don't do that. Uh, there's a couple members of my congregation that doesn't think it's somebody else's religion. Uh, the palm reading is, what do you mean? This is an art. This is a science. And it's really so. And I go, no, I'm, pr I'm pretty sure these lines are my hands are because I've been holding books, not hammers. And that's why my lines are this way. Who knows? But, um, so, but this astrology thing um, in Augustus Day, he's, he, Christian reverence repudiates it. Um, it's good to confess to you, Master, and to say, have pity on me. Heal my soul, since I have sinned against you. And not to use your leniency as a license to sin, but instead to remember the words of my Master. See, you are made whole. Do not sin now, in case something worse should happen to you. But the astrologers tried to kill this principle in all its wholesomeness by saying, you have straight from the heavens a reason for sinning that you can't avoid. This is about fatalism. The planet Venus did this, or Saturn or Mars did it, not you. Ah, well, whatever. Whatever the argument was. I'm a Capricorn, so this is the way I am. I'm deal with it. Apparently, as if there were no fault in a human being who is flesh and blood and arrogant and putrefaction, as if, on the contrary, the one who creates and regulates the heavens and the stars is to blame. That's a shift. Astrologers weren't blaming God. But Augustine says that's where your argument ends up. They're, as it turns out, they're being a God. So if you're going to blame it on the stars, you're going to blame it on the maker of the stars. So the reason why I did dastardly deeds and fooled people and laughed at them and, and was self-serving was because, well, because God. The one who creates and regulates the heavens and the stars is to blame. And who is this, if not our God, the sweet source of justice, right and wrong stuff, who gives each and every person what he is owed for his works and does not scorn a broken and humbled heart. At that time, now we're going to go to our second connection. At that time, there was an astute man. We've talked about the one woman. Now we have the astute man with a profound knowledge of medical science and great distinction in that field. 
he, 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 um, the clairvoyant con men, the astrologers is a group of people. Um, so we're, we're dealing with a succession of here's all the false, all the false trails I walked down when I was young. Now, medical science and great distinction in that field. When he held the office of provincial governor, that's big. He's, he's the Roman number one in North Africa, if he's referring to his own homeland. He placed with his own hands on my unhealthy head that crown for which I contended. In other words, he awarded the prize, though he did do it, of course, in the capacity of a physician. I'm just saying, I got, a, I got an award from the governor, uh, but he was a physician. Now, let's talk about his being a physician. You, rather, who stand against the arrogant, but grant your favor to the weak, are the healer of the disease I suffered from then. You're, you didn't give the disease, like the astrologers will say. You're the healer of it. But you didn't. Did you? Fail me or fall off in treating my soul even through that old man. I'd become something of an intimate of his, and I sat rooted and stuck like a nail to his conversation, which though unpolished in its manner, like I was better at rhetoric than the governor, was appealing and commanding of respect because of the strong-minded opinions displayed in it. He's a forceful guy. When he found out in dialogue with me that I was a devotee of the horoscope caster's books, he advised me in a kind and fatherly manner to throw them away and not waste on that poppycock the trouble and attention that were needed for useful things. So here's a guy who, because he's a physician, and I would listen to him, he is the governor and kind of a forceful guy, he told me that this astrology stuff was all poppycock. He said that during his early youth, he'd studied such books so eagerly that he'd convinced a wish to carry on this calling as his livelihood and life's work. This is what he wanted to be when he grew up. And he thought that if he understood Hippocrates, that's a pretty broad term for <coughs> all kinds of medical and physical knowledge, he certainly must be able to understand these writings too. Yet he abandoned them later and pursued medicine precisely because he'd come to recognize that they were deceptive in the extreme and as a man with self-respect, he was unwilling to make his living by deceiving people. This is what your horoscope is. People making money. I think it's the Union Tribune right now, making money by printing horoscopes. But you, he said, this is the guy talking to Augustine, can sustain yourself in the community through the profession of rhetoric that you maintain. You've got a way forward, pal. You're a first-class rhetorician. We all see the gift. And yet you run after this chicanery as a pastime, <clears throat> voluntarily, and not because your household is hard up. You're not doing this for the money. You don't need the money, kid. You're, we all know you're headed to be the chair of rhetoric at some university. We all know that. We all see it coming, all right? You don't need this stuff. So the people who do it need it. This is their way of making money. That's their self-justification for their deceitfulness. You should trust me all the more when I tell you this, in that I took great pains to learn this stuff through and through as I meant it to be my sole livelihood. I asked him what the reason was then, that many pronouncements from this source turned out to be true. It works. They make predictions, predictions and it's so. So 
Got to answer that. So he answered that as far as he could see. The power of fortune's lottery spread everywhere throughout the universe made for this result. Like the chances are they're going to be right some of the time. Your fortune cookie, you are going to meet somebody in the next week um, that will have an impact in your life. Yeah, or I was in a coma for a whole week. Yeah, after seven days of dealing with people, somebody should have some impact in my life. Of course, I'm going to swear a stack of Bibles that they know everything. If I get hit in a car accident, and that's the impact in my life, you know, and I'm just going to read into it. I did this with all three of my children. I want to disabuse them of the silliness. I want my kids to be rational. We did the fortune cookie thing for several weeks, and this, this is it. And I want you to interpret this, presuming it's true. You're getting to interpret the next few days of your life as if this is true and tell me how it's true. And these things can't be wrong. If, one, if, if, if that's the way it worked, the next time it tells me I'm going to win the lottery, I'll actually buy a ticket. I don't know that it increases my chances, but never having bought a lottery ticket, I think my chances are small. Uh, all right. If, for example, it often happens that a poet, any poet at all, is consulted at random. So you just open up a book of poetry and you read a few lines. A line emerges that's amazingly in harmony with the reason for consulting him. You open up your Bible. Lord, what should I do? And he just, like this, it, it, uh, it says, Judas went out and hung himself. Okay, that can't be God's word to me today. I do it again, I open it up, and Jesus says to the disciple, go and do likewise. Well, never mind. There's a better way of getting meaning from Scripture. Than this, but so if just a random um, consulting of a poet, it's going to be in harmony with something in your life. Poets write about life, though the poet was writing about and meaning something far different. It isn't all that amazing that in astrology a chord might be struck, not through science but by chance. Some people, some people will argue. There's an ancient world and there's a modern world. Actually, I guess there's a postmodern world. I'm really disappointed that. I'm just figuring out the modern world. I'm so disappointed that this one's, I guess, going away too. Um, but when did the first end and the second begin? You know, it wasn't overnight one night. But at what point in human history, what set of events, um, what set of ideas, what texts, what people represent the last of that and the first of this. Some people argue Augustine because of statements like that. Yeah, they're gonna be right some of the time, but not through science, through knowledge, but by chance, all right? Well, that may or may, or may not be the case. Um, you know, the other, the other place is the Enlightenment and the Reformation. Um, that uh, Luther was the last medieval 
and Calvin was the first modern, and you know they were somewhat contemporary, uh, Luther a half a half a generation ahead. But it was that acknowledging and beginning to break, and then a more complete, more reformed break um, by Calvin, and that's the moment. Well, it's not a moment, but so uh, somewhere in there. Um, so that a chord might be struck that resonates exactly with concerns and actions of the person consulting the astrologer. The human soul can, in fact, strike such a chord through some higher prompting and without even an awareness of what that prompting is about. Six, truly this was providence care you took of me from this source or through this channel and you trace the outline in my memory for what I could look into on my own later. I was beginning to get it. You're putting that seed in me. At the time, however, neither he nor even Nebridius, that's not the best friend he's going to talk about, but that's his most common. He and Olympias are his best friends from youth. They both become bishops also. A good and very pure young man, of whom I was extremely fond and who ridiculed the whole field of prognostication. I was falling for it, but one of my best friends wasn't. Could persuade me to discard its claims since it was more the prestige of those who penned them that motivated me. And up to this time, I hadn't found the certain proof I was seeking to show me beyond any doubt that the true things these people said when consulted were said at random or by the raw luck of the draw and not by the science of those who scrutinize the stars. This boy knows the difference between astrology and astronomy. Your neighbor might not, but he did. Now we're gonna talk about a friend. So now we're on, on to our third or fourth person. During those years, the period at which I was first starting to teach in the town in which I was born, went back to his hometown to be a teacher, I acquired a friend who, because of our shared interests, was incredibly dear to me. He was my age and flourished with me in the flower of young manhood. As a boy, he'd grown up with me. We'd gone to school side by side, and side by side we played. <coughs> but he wasn't then the friend he was later on, or even later on, he wasn't a true friend. Got up. Hold that thought because everything is going to say, it's going to say, this isn't a true friend. What is true friendship is what you glue together between those who cling to you. When love floods our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which is given to us, he'll write an essay on friendship. He loves Cicero and Cicero says that friendship is agreement on things, human divine with affection. That's the definition of a friend. Augustine will go with that, go with that, go with that. It's all over his writings until the time of the writing of the Confessions. On the far side of the Confessions, he openly rejects Cicero's definition, a hard thing for him to do, and says, it's agreement on things human and divine with affection in our Lord Jesus Christ. So that, and again, if you don't like Augustine, you don't like him because he makes those moves. So that you got two neighbors who aren't Christians. They can be in agreement about everything human and divine, but they're not really friends because Christ isn't in the middle. He's the bond. What Augustine will do that will just, I think, make our jaw drop in such a 
whatever severe or thorough guy that he is, is <coughs> uh, Marcianus becomes the Roman legate to North Africa. He's the most powerful Roman North Africa. Augustine's the bishop. These two are friends. These two are friends in their youth. Um, Marcianus is converted later in life, writes a letter and says, I've seen the light and I've been baptized. And I know you, my dearest friend from my youth, are going to be thrilled at me announcing this to you. And Augustine says, I couldn't be more thrilled. And you weren't my friend. <laughs> because neither of us were Christians. We were both Manichees back then. That doesn't count. And when I became a Christian, you were even worse. We're no longer in agreement on things human and divine. Yeah, there's affection, but you're not the Lord Jesus, I am. That period of our lives together. But now that you've become a Christian, now finally we're true friends. And you're, you know, I, I'll say for me, I was like, come on, because a friend is a friend. You know what? I'm the pastor. I'm telling my congregation to make friends with every pagan they possibly can to be a witness to the Lord Jesus. So just give yourself and your friend a break. But then he signs the letter from Augustine, your truest and longest friend from our youth. It's like, okay, I don't know. For, what, for one sentence, you speak from the heart. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to give you that one, you know. Uh, so um, he was my age, flourished, grew up together. Um, but it was an excessively sweet friendship, cooked up as it was in the heat of our similar pursuits, excessively sweet, because I turned him away from the true faith. He was moving toward Christianity. I blocked the way, which as a youth, he didn't have in his blood. He didn't, he didn't get raised by Monica like I did as part of his deeper self. I led him into those superstitions, malignant Manichaean fairy tales that made my mother mourn for me. My friend was, in his mind, lost along with me, and my soul couldn't be without him. Two of them, I'm leading the way now. This is the point at life, not in his earlier, not the pear tree incident in the early ones. Augustine is not the leader of the pack. But by the time they're getting what we would call an undergraduate and graduate education, Augustine's now the leader of the pack. He's the most influential in the group. But there you were, love this phrase, breathing down the neck of your runaways. Uh, ever hear a great preacher say at the table, um, we hid, you came looking for us, we fled, you pursued us, wouldn't let us go. That's the story of the Old Testament. Um, it's, it's Israel being stiff-necked and God being pursuant. God's retributions and flowing springs of mercy, the hard things he threw us, the good things he threw us, who turns us back around toward you in marvelous ways. There you were, taking that person out of his life when he had scarcely rounded out a year in my friendship, which was sweet beyond all the sweet things in my life then. What individual can tally up your merits? Only the ones he's experienced individually. What did you do at that time, my God? And how untraceable are the depths of your judgments? When he was suffering with a fever, he lay a long time unaware of what happened around him. 
and in a deep sweat. When there was deemed to be no hope for him, he was baptized without knowing it. This guy is just out of it. Some Christians come in and baptize him. I thought nothing of it and presumed that his soul kept what it had gotten from me, the Manichaean fairy tales, not what happened to his body, that's not his spirit, while he was unconscious. It turned out far different, however. He recovered, escaping the danger to his life. And as soon as I could speak to him, which I could do as soon as he could speak, since I didn't leave him the whole time, we were so ex excessively attracted to each other. I tried to laugh it off with him, that is the baptism, assuming he was going to join me in laughing at the right he'd receive when his unconscious and physical senses were completely unreachable. He had, however, already learned that he received it, and he shrank back from me as if I were his deadly enemy. And with intimate and startling frankness, he warned me that if I wanted to be his friend, I should stop saying such things. I was stunned and distressed and put off telling him my reactions until he convalesced and was suitably strong and healthy so that I could deal with him however I liked. But he was snatched away from my madness to be kept with you for my comfort. Mm. After a few days when I wasn't there, he was again attacked by fever and passed away. The sorrow of this overshadowed my heart and whatever I looked at his death, my hometown and whatever there is out there, I looked at his death, my hometown was an agonizing punishment for me and my father's house a place of bizarre misery. And all the activities I shared with him turned without him into a monstrous torture. My eyes searched everywhere eagerly for him, but he wasn't presented to them. I hated everything because nothing had him in it and nothing could now say to me, look, he's coming as things did while he lived and wasn't in my company. I became my own elaborate investigation and I grilled my soul as to why it was sad and why it threw me into such terrible distress. But it didn't have any answer for me. If I tried saying to it, hope in God, it was right in not obeying me because the man it loved had loved devotedly and lost was more real and better than the figment in which it was commanded to hope. He was more real to me than you were God at that moment. Only weeping was pleasant to me. And that, the weeping, had taken my friend's place as my heart's delight. The only thing that had any comfort, any delight, was just weeping about him. But now, Master, those things have passed away. And time has soothed my wound. It's 45 now. Uh, this happened uh, 25 years ago. Am I able to hear something from you who are the truth? Can I move my heart's ear to your mouth so that you can tell me why weeping is pleasant for those in misery? Stop and think about lamenting. Or have you, though you're present everywhere, thrown our misery far away from you so that you remain in yourself, whereas we are rolled along in our trials? Are you there with us or aren't you? 
And yet, if we didn't wail for your ears to hear it, there would be nothing left of our hope. The only sign of anything is that when I cry out, maybe you hear. Why then is sweet fruit plucked from life's bitterness, from groaning and weeping and sighing and lamenting? Does the sweetness in it consist of our hope that you'll listen? That's the case where prayers are concerned, since they include the desire to reach you. But that couldn't be the case in sorrow for a loss and mourning, feelings in which I was buried back then. Could it? I neither hoped that he would come back to life. I mean, what was I crying out for? In my misery, I simply suffered and wept. In my misery, I missed what had been my joy. Weeping essentially a bitter thing, gratifying us because we turn up our noses at the things we enjoyed before and shrink back from them afterward. But why am I discussing these things? Now is not the occasion for an inquiry. In other words, great questions, Augustine. I, Augustine, don't have the answers. But why am I discussing these things? Now is not the occasion for an inquiry, but for giving my testimony. I forgot. I lost my track here. I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be witnessing to you about you. I was wretched. And every mind is wretched when chained to friendships with things bound to die. Listen, this is the way it is. Our friends die. It's torn to shreds, but it loses them. That's when it feels the anguish that actually afflicts it long before it loses them. Don't you have a sense that you're going to be saying goodbye to half the people in your life and half of them are going to be saying goodbye to you? Yeah? Now, when, when my girls... Uh, went, Jason went to college uh, 20, 20 minutes away in Chicago when our girls went far away to college, which if I remember correctly was kind of the point to go as far away as possible to college. We're in Chicago. One comes to California. One goes to Massachusetts. Um, it was a death. I, I, I felt a death. And there is an every goodbye with my daughters, you know, in, you know, a physical goodbye. I'm going to leave their place. Two days later, I'm going to FaceTime them. But there's a, there's a saying goodbye is dying. It, 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 it turns my stomach. There's a whatever it is in, in the gut. It just, um, I got to keep my composure uh, when I say goodbye to them. Uh, by the way, they don't have this problem. After I've been there a week, goodbye, Dad. It's great to have you. Let's do this again, oh, I don't know, in a couple of years or something. Um, but now, Master, these things have passed away. Uh, why then is fruit, sweet fruit plucked from its bitterness? But why am I discussing these things? We're in the second paragraph of 11. That's how it was with me at that period. I cried very bitterly and rested in my bitterness. I was nursing the wound, I think we would say. Thus, I was in anguish. But I held my actual anguished life dearer than that friend of mine. It got, it became perverse. I began to love absence, the misery. Because though I would have liked to change my life, I was less willing to lose it than to lose him. Uh, wonderfully said. Maybe, well, maybe I would have been willing if it was actually for him as in the tradition about Orestes and Pleiades, if it's not just made up. Who were willing to die one in place of the other or at one in the same time 
because it was worse for them not both to be alive at once. Actually a lovely story, but no. In me had arisen a certain feeling as different from theirs as it could be. I was weighted insufferably down with weariness from being alive because I dreaded death. I believe that the more I loved him, the more I feared and hated death, which had taken him away from me as if it were a savagely cruel enemy. I thought death would suddenly devour all of humankind since death was able to do that to him. That's the state I was in, all told, as I remember it. My God, here's my heart. Here's my inner being. See it, because I remember it. You, my hope, who cleansed me from the uncleanliness of feelings like this, guiding my eyes to you and plucking the snare from my feet. I was amazed that other mortals were alive, because he, whom I love, as if he were never going to die, was dead. It, is, isn't that one of, it, one of the things we wrestle with? Somebody who's our life dies, and then life goes on. The grocery sto store still opens up. There's still traffic out on the street. Why doesn't the whole world stop? What, what's, the, what's the poem I should have that? I love it. Is it Auden? Um, make all the clocks stop? Um, because, because his friend has died. Like this, it's not right. It's not proportionate that things go on. Um, I was amazed that other mortals were alive. I was even more amazed that I was alive while he wasn't because I was his counterpart, him, but another one of him. The author was exactly right who called his friend half of my own soul. That's Horace in his odes um, uh, and Augustine will quote that line often, uh, <coughs> that friendship is two people, one soul. Well, that's Plato. I felt that my soul and the soul of the other had been a single one in two bodies. And for that reason, life was purely horror to me. I just lost half, half of my soul because I didn't want to live as a half. And conceivably, for the same reason, I dreaded death. I didn't want the one I had loved so much to die in his entirety when I died. My purpose in being alive, <coughs> excuse me, my purpose in being alive is to keep that half of him alive. <coughs> um, 12, let me finish reading 12. That finishes this part of the story. What an insanity of ignorance the inability to keep human affections on a human scale. It became perverse. And now a human being bungles in bearing human fate intemperately. That was what I was at the time. I, so I seethed, I sighed, I sobbed, I turned myself inside out and I had neither rest nor access to reason. I hauled around with me a gouged and gory soul which itself had quite enough of this, but I couldn't find a place to put it down. Not in scenic groves, not in sports and music, not in fragrant spots, not in well-appointed dinner, dinner parties, not in the sensuality of the bed and the couch, and not, would you believe it, in books and poetry. You would have think that would have worked for me. Everything repelled me, even daylight itself. And everything with the being apart from him was obnoxious and offensive. 
except for groaning and tears. And these alone was a scintilla of rest. But whenever my soul was shifted from there, it was loaded down with a big sack of misery. I knew my soul needed to be lifted up to you and thus relieved, but I had neither the wish nor the push in me. And even less so in that you weren't any kind of solid or steady resource when I contemplated you. You weren't you, but an empty apparition. And my God was my mistake. I didn't, I didn't know you as you, but the you I thought you were was useless. If I tried to put my wretchedness there so that it could rest, it fell through the empty space and crashed down on top of me again. And there I was stuck, a cursed spot for myself where I couldn't remain and from which I couldn't retreat. To where could my heart run away from my heart? Where could I run away from myself? Where could I not pursue me? Yet I did run from my hometown. My eyes were going to look for him less in a place where there weren't they weren't used to seeing him. And I left the town of Thagaste from Carthage. Well, the pastor thinks that's really good writing. He thinks that's pretty impressive. Augustine's not the first person to experience grief. Don't think that thought. And other people had expressed grief. I'm not sure what I take as a competitor to this passage from the ancient world. Um, pagan or Christian um, about the expression of grief. And there are other others, and there are good ones. It, don't for a moment think that people didn't mourn their losses. I don't know. Somehow Christians in, in, invented friendship and marital love and things like that. Uh, we did. Um, what I did a lot of studying of the family, and there are moderns, our contemporaries, who say. Affection between parents and children is really kind of a modern thing. The ancients, their kids died. Mortality rates being so high, they were unattached to them. That's nuts. Uh, parents love children um, and have problems with children. Parents love children. Um, uh, Epicurious, as in Epicurean, um, doesn't believe in an afterlife. It teaches there's no afterlife. So eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. That meaning that's the end. So you're not preparing for, you don't need to be disciplined toward another life. This is it. But he says, if there were, there should be no sadness, therefore, in leaving this life. Well, accept that. Accept that. You have to contemplate that when you come home at the end of the day, no longer will you hear the, the, the patter of the feet of your children racing to the door to see who will be the first to give you a kiss. You're not going to have that anymore. So if you want to be sad about dying, there would be some reason. Well, they get it. They get it. You don't want, you don't want that to stop, eh? Actually, most of us would have liked that to start. 
<laughs> that'd, that'd be a really good idea. So, um, only have about 15 minutes or so. Um, he's going to talk about another friendship in 13, uh, about friends. He's going to go on and on about friends, what he loved in friends. And then he's going to, we're, we're going to track his mind here. And what he's going to come out with is, here's a, a, a big mistake that I made in all this. I love the thing rather than you who made the thing. I admired the beauty in the forest, not you makes the forest. I loved all of these qualities in my friend and our sense of two peas in a pod. We're, we're one person, we're one soul in two different bodies. We are attached at the hip, whatever phrase you like. And we're all of this. When I should have been focusing on you. And here's the advantage. One, this passes. My friend dies. If I put everything into that, either he's going to suffer the loss of me or I'm going to suffer the loss of him. That is the way it works. We all die. But you do not. So that if I were to give my affection to you, well, then that never goes away. And then I die and you you draw me to yourself. I'm never away from you. Point one. Point two, where do I think this? my best friend came from? Like, this is a gift from you. And it's at least slightly insulting not to recognize that. To, uh, you know, some, I'll, I'll admit, some of us are baffled we've been Christians for so long. How can, how can you look at the stars in the sky? How can you see the beauty of nature and, and not say, wow, what a creator? I just, I just, you have to work on denial, not to come up with that. I don't think you have to work that hard if, if the idea hasn't come to you before. Somebody has to help you with that idea. But he needed the help with this idea. Um, I sit down with a couple, I'm pointing to my space, uh, where I sit down with them. They're preparing for marriage. By the way, these, these, uh, these conferences are completely worthless because these two people are in love the way no two people in the history of the universe have ever been in love. No pastor knows anything about that. We will listen to you out of respect and because this is the only way you're going to agree to marry us. But don't think for a moment we're taking notes on this, all right? Uh, every couple that I marry, I give them that speech that I just gave you and then I say, that's okay, I wasn't listening either. But six months from now, I want the right to call you up and call you in and say, hey, how's it going? Can we talk? Because within six months, you'll know better. That it, it, there's some work here and maybe a little help. And from thousands of years of marriages and wisdoms that come from them and from scripture might, might be of some help to you. But what I want to convince them of then is it's not the two of you. It's the three of you. God is doing this. There's seven, be seven billion people on the planet. Did you really think that you worked this out? Now, no doubt you, usually him, you schemed and schemed and schemed and schemed and schemed to get in front of her, to get her attention. I'm projecting my own 
courtship here and you're know, doing everything you can to get noticed and all that. She did it too, but frankly, she didn't do ha- need to do half as much as you did. And you'll never figure out this. I, I did ask my parents once. I really did. It's an old line, but I did. So how did the two of you get together? They, they never struck me as being the same. They were always in cahoots against kids, but they weren't the same. Dad's over six foot and a Republican. Mother never made it to five feet and is a Democrat. And they grew up in the same church, but whatever. So I said, how the two of you get together? And the answer is, from my dad, I chased and chased and chased her until she caught me. It's like, I had no idea. She was just reeling me in. I was doing all of the work here. And then, boom, there, there you have it. So um, that I want to persuade them that the two don't become one without the one joining them. So... What do you think God has to say about this? He's so glad that the two of you got together. This is the only, this is the last important decision of your life. You don't need any guidance for the, you don't, you have no important decisions remaining. You don't need his guidance. So how are the three of you going to do this? Um, That you haven't thought of no matter how godly, and of course, all the kids in our church are remarkably godly, (laughs) thoroughly and perfectly godly. None of them describe their courtship as primarily a Bible study. So can I bring that? What'd you think the pastor was gonna say, eh? So um, um, I think this is wonderfully Christian. Again, if you, Want to be cynical about Augustine? Andrews, don't you know, all that is just Plato. You don't fall in love with the natural world, material things. They are just instances, examples, illustrations, things that are meant to push you toward beauty. Capital B. Things can be beautiful be more or less filled with beauty, different amounts, percentages. Um, But beauty is a thing and it's not within your reach. It is spiritual. It's an idea. It's It's a form, a pattern, if you will. And these are samples of it. And this is when your philosophy professor in your 101 class, puts a chair in front of the class and says, what is this? And some poor unsuspecting freshman says, that's a chair. And the professor says, what? That is not a chair. That's just a sample of a chair. A chair is an idea. You've got this word that applies to a thousand different things that you've imagined and that you've witnessed. You use the same name, chair, because A chair is a thing out of your reach, an idea. And these are just samples of it. Well, you let that go through. He's, you know, 500, 400 BC. You let another 400 years AD go by. You have Neoplatonists. Augustine clearly has read them. uh, Periphery and Plotinus. And yeah, this is the, the philosophy that's the companion piece to his theology is Neoplatonism. 
you get to the Middle Ages, it's going to be Aristotle. Uh, Aquinas does really well in Platonism, but it's not his first choice. He's going to run with Aristotle. But we all have some idea of how things work in our theology is expressed in some of those patterns. Um, my favorite, by the way, is Scottish common sense realism. This, this is a real thing, a real philosophical school, and it's the 17, 18, and 1900s, but I just love the word. So like, it's just self-evident. This is the one right way to think about the world. It's Scottish, it's common sense, and it's realism. I actually couldn't give you an intelligent explanation of it, but I'm convinced of it just by its name. Um, if you were to turn a few more pages, um, he, uh, he spends a lot of time thinking through that. That's, that's a, a harder read. Look at 18. <coughs> Got a couple minutes here. He makes a move. I read it over and over again. I, I, don't, I, I don't want him to make this move, but I think he did. 18. If material things please you, <laughs> praise God for them. For the first time, he's not talking to God. I think it's the first time. I don't think I missed something, but prior to this. So he's talking about God. Praise God. So he's now lecturing. And turn back toward their maker. This is what he's been saying he needed to do. Now he's telling you. He's talking to you, not God. If material things please you, that's okay. Praise God for them. And turn back toward their maker the course of your love for them, so that the sources of your pleasure don't make you yourself an object of displeasure. Mm. Latin lets you do that. Uh, make nice mm -hmm. contrasts and opposites. So don't make the, uh, the waterfall your pleasure, but the God who makes the waterfall, or you'll become a displeasure to God. If soul meet with your approval, back to friendship now. That was the context. If souls meet with your approval, let them be loved in God. Because in themselves, they're changeable. Whereas in him, they're attached to a firm foundation. <clears throat> Otherwise, they would go. They would run to the ruin. So let them be loved in him. And however many you can, carry them off along with yourself for God telling them the following. So not only now is he talking to you, he's telling you what you must say. All right. Here's what you need to say. He's the one we must love. Go to 19. We only got a couple minutes and I want to read 19. So he's still telling you, these are the words I want you to say. Our life in person came down here and took on our death and killed it with his own overflowing life. And he spoke like a thunderclap shouting for us to return to him from here and enter that secret place from which he came forth to us, coming first into the virgin womb itself, where the creation that was humankind became his bride so that the dying body wouldn't always have to die. But there he came forth like a bridegroom out of the bedroom. He's describing birth, I think. And he was thrilled like a giant with a race to run. He lost no time, but ran with shouts of words and acts, death, life, descent, I think it to hell, ascent to heaven, 
all the time shouting for us to return to him. He departed from our sight so that we would return to the heart and find him. He parted from us. And look, here he is. He was unwilling to be with us long, but he didn't leave us. He withdrew to a place from which he never drew back because the universe was made by him and he was in the universe and he came into this universe to save sinners. Mm. To him, my soul confesses and he heals it since it sinned against him. Sons of men, he's addressing us, how long will you be heavy hearted? Even after the descent of life, would you be unwilling to ascend and live? Where do you have to climb to since you've already exalted yourselves and set your loud mouths up sky high? Come down so that you can go up. You can go up to God. You fell by climbing up to try to challenge God. He's, now, those were the words you're supposed to say. Now he's talking to the people who are supposed to say it. Tell them this so that they wail in the valley of wailing and carry them off along with yourself to God because you say these things to them out of the spirit if in speaking you burn with the fire of a selfless love. Yeah, well, next in 20 is going to call them the lower beauties. These all these beauties and there's the one higher beauty. He talks about an essay that he wrote um, that's in the middle of 20 called On the Beautiful and the Fitting. And it says it's been lost. Can't find it. Not that I want to. It was in my you know, <clears throat> unconverted years. Then he'll talk about a person by name in 21. Aerius, an orator in the city of Rome. Never met the guy face to face, but I'd fallen in love with him because of his reputed learning for which he was celebrated. And I'd heard certain quotations from him, which I liked. But my stronger reason for liking him was that other people liked him and praised him to the skies, as they were amazed that somebody from Syria, who'd initially been trained only in Greek oratory, and later on turned out to be a marvelous speaker in Latin, and so deeply learned in questions connected to philosophical studies. So this was another idol along the way, kind of pursued him, didn't get much out of it, but and then a series of questions in 23, like, so where were you then? Well, God, Augustine will say this, God was giving me pleasures to draw beauties, pleasures, <coughs> good things, to draw me to him, the beauty, the good thing, the pleasure. And he was knocking me down so that I wouldn't get the full pleasure out of these things because I'd get stuck in them if I did. If, I don't know, doesn't seem to be his problem, but if he's pursuing money, uh, that this is the end of my being, uh, purpose of it. You didn't let me get that much. So that I'd always be dis dissatisfied. And a dissatisfied person is more likely to become a convert. So you gave me good things so that I might see your goodness. I didn't. But you gave me good things, not denying that. But you didn't give me so much. You withheld some things so that I would never be satisfied. Um, I probably have lost the place, but in here, the first time, um, it gives a definition of beauty. Uh, this is in 24. I'll start there. But I didn't yet see that the pivot of such an important 
who matter is in your artistry, all-powerful one. Since on your own, you make wonders. My mind went off among material forms, and I defined and distinguished the beautiful as being something fine in itself, something that has such integrity. Isn't that in itself the coolest thing? And the fitting as being fine when adapted to something else. Or these two things, you know, either a singular thing that's so singular, it's beautiful, or a multiple thing that fits together. All right. So beauty is one of those two things. <clears throat> uh, last paragraph in 24, he's talking about his monarchism. I called the first the monad, the singular thing, as being like thought without gender. It's, it's just this thing that's out there. And the second I called a dyad, which is a double thing, such as anger and faction fighting, lust and depraved acts. I'm one thing, something, something else. And there's attraction, there's distraction. Although I had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't know. I hadn't learned that evil isn't any substance whatsoever. That's what he, that's what Augustine will teach is evil. It has no substance or that our mind in itself isn't the highest good or an unchangeable one. Again, for Augustine, evil is a real thing. It's the real absence of the good thing. So Manichaeism like the good God and the bad God. The bad God was the God of the Old Testament. God who created material things. What kind of a God does that? Okay, the spiritual God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, always high in the heavens, that's the good God. And Augustine doesn't, he, he just rejects the dualism as when he becomes a Christian. It's just, just the wrong path for everything. And so he doesn't want to give evil equal footing with good. And the way to do that is, Evil is the def the definition of evil is the absence of the good, like the hole in your shirt. There's nothing there if that's what's wrong. It's not like something else is there. Your shirt isn't there where your shirt should be. I'm going to leave it at that because of our time. Um, we only got through two thirds of it, but uh, that story about his friend. I just think is masterful. Just think that's really well done. Comments, questions. What do you think? Are you enjoying your reading? I also like that part where he was talking about um, <coughs> that I wasn't able to love others as a friend without God's love inside of me. It was mm -hmm. one of the parts that we kind of skipped yeah, over. Yeah. Um, and then he goes on to say, um, you know, and I also just couldn't love my enemies either, but, but he couldn't even love his friends until he loved God and was able yeah. to love them. I, I thought that was very, it was a great, um, I mean, he kind of said that throughout, but there was just that one spot where he didn't. You know, let, let, let me ask you, who, who among us is a very good very close, not a relative, well, I suppose it could be a relative, a very dear friend, not a follower of Christ. Remember, your pastor wants you to have a dozen of these relationships, <laughs> but... Uh, so I have friends, but they're, I, 
to his point, I can't get as close because they're not, right? So I have a friend who just texted me and wants to get together and I need a Carol hug. You know, that was her good thing for this week. She's, I don't know what's going on, but whatever. Um, and, um, and I do feel like we're friends. We, you know, we're working together. We had a relationship. I was able to pray for her. She would let me do that with her in the room and everything, but we just couldn't have that. That's because she, that's because she won't let you go. Well, it's into uh, that next level with God. So at least some parts are unshared. This, this is an anecdote and it's somewhat superficial, but it's part of it. When my youngest daughter was a law student at William and Mary, there was an important other in her life, another law student. And I really liked the kid and, and all this, not a Christian. She went to Williamsburg Presbyterian Church every Sunday. He would go with her. She would say, what do you think? And he would say, if you weren't here, I wouldn't be going. I mean, you know, I don't want to be a jerk about this. You go to church, you want me to go to church with you? I'll go to church with you. But it, it's not like any lights going on, nor do I expect one uh, to go on. So she, uh, you know, it's beautiful when you have a daughter like this. So, so dad, this is just going to make, if we were to marry, this would just make some things hard. And I said, I, I don't think it's, you know, the don't be unequally yoked. I, I said, I don't think it's about making things hard. Maybe some things are. It makes a couple of things impossible. You want to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, like you will. Yeah, you bet, Dad. You'll be doing that alone. You can do it. Maybe it's harder. But it's impossible for it to be shared. He's not on the mission. There's uh, that sense of it. And um, she wasn't looking for what she's, I just appreciated her honesty about this and said, um, so, uh, but there's a possibility he could become a Christian. I thought there's a strong possibility he's going to become a Christian. But I actually don't think it's going to be through you. What do I know? Well, frankly, my advice, if she was kind to me, she honors me, we're alike, we listen, doesn't have to commit what she's going to do. She goes back and thinks about it. Her sister hears about it, calls her up, reads her the riot act, <clears throat> brings out the scripture, starts pounding on the table over the phone, and the relationship comes to an end. It's like, okay, maybe, you know, <laughs> that wasn't my move, but... Rachel, my daughter Rachel's got a whole lot more black and white in her than, than uh, I did at that moment. So I, I think that's part of it. I wish, yeah, yeah my best friends, um, some of them were in town. Um, Pastor of National Presbyterian Church, those the persons, I think you guys know the persons, uh, was here. Um, we're the same age, we're both 69. And we think about the same things. We been allies, we've been friends. This is just an easy relationship. You know, it's met with embraces. And, and this is geared, especially after all this time. And, you know, two years ago, how very, very sick I was, not just with the cancer, but how whatever beat down I was. He was here in town. There was a big, it's called Society of Biblical Literature, American Association of Religion, 
uh, American Academy of Religion was in town. So there was at my house one night, 30, 40 of my friends, pastors from around the country, seminary professors, drinking my most expensive scotch. <laughs> I'm sitting in a chair. I can't get out of the chair. And I'm just grateful to be with them, and see them and, and all of us. And Lois is kind of sad about this. But what I didn't pick up on, I really didn't, was it was a few months later. I made one trip within the next six months. I saw a couple of them and very close friends, very tight with them and said, you know, Jerry, this is a miracle. I go, yeah, I know it's a miracle. Well, we thought we had said goodbye to you. Mm. And I said, you, you, you thought I was going to bed. Yeah. Well, and we said goodbye. When did you say goodbye? When we were all at your house that night, um, you attended your own wake, Jerry. It's like, really? You guys, I didn't, I didn't pick up on that. Yeah. But so John Burgess, who teaches theology at Pittsburgh and uh, was the editor of the book that he and I and Joe wrote. Yes, there was a moment when he was kneeling beside my chair. He was holding my hand and was telling me how dear our lifelong friendship had been. And I was resisting the idea that I was going to die. I had no idea my friends were saying goodbye. So David Rennick, the pastor at National, first time in two years that I've been with him. Since that, that was in November of 2019. Uh, he comes and it's, um, yeah, Jerry, I mean, this is just so dear to be able to hug you. Because I said goodbye to you. You did what? It's like, yeah, Jerry, we were, we were there to say goodbye. I go, I thought you were just there to drink my scotch. <laughs> it's, it's gone. It's taken me a while to get enough money to replace it all. What you guys did. So, um, yeah, that's, that's about lifelong. It is about alliance. This is a group of people with whom I'm mostly in agreement with, even within Presbyterian context. Most of them are pastors or theologians. I like to think of myself as both of those things. Yeah, most of them are male, not all of them. Um, you know, this is not a very diverse group in that sense. Across the country, but whatever. But yeah, those are... Uh, but I have, I went to my 50th high school reunion last year, which is actually the 51st year. It was postponed the year before. I only wanted to see two people. Because there were two people that I went to kindergarten with and graduated with. Because the three of us skipped the fifth grade together. They thought we were smart. We proved them wrong the next year. <laughs> but they thought we were so whatever it is you're supposed to learn in the fifth grade, I think it's state capitals. I still don't know the state capitals. And I don't know which way the rivers flow in, in Europe. And there's a few other things that I, that I didn't learn. But Penny and Pat and I went to kindergarten together, skipped fifth grade together. We're not close in junior high. We're not close in high school. We all live within four blocks of each other. And the day of graduation, we never saw each other again. And we had kind of gotten in touch, email, found each other out, agreed to be at the 50th reunion. Uh, there was a thousand people in my graduating class. I was interested in seeing two. And no, we didn't pick up where we left off. We recognized each other. That was reassuring. Uh, we recognized each other. And we heard each other's paths in life, three very different paths. Um, and uh, all that. But there was never a shared faith in that. Uh, 
oldest friends outside the family are from my high school youth group, church, church youth group. And some seminary friends are very close, not college friends, but seminary friends are close. Um, he strikes me as kind of severe on this, but, but when it's two people getting married, it's, it's the idea I run with. Marriage is a human right. Neither of you know Jesus. I will perform this wedding. Whatever it is, reason you came to church, it's in the church. It's a worship service. We will acknowledge God's presence. We will pray. We will read the scripture. Don't know why you're up for that. Probably your parents are forcing you into it. That's okay. We'll work this out. Um, um, and I'm glad to do it. I'm glad to do it. Um, and almost nobody isn't living together when they get to this point. And I, I say, thank you for not asking me to bless your current arrangement. I'm so glad to be able to bless your next arrangement. And let's go, let's go forward for it. And, uh, but yeah, when they're both Christians, I, I say different things. It's, it's, it's just not the two of you. So Jesus is important to you in everything but your marriage. Where's the practical wisdom in that? So, well, he'll tell us more about his friends. His friends, these friends, well, except for the one who died, these friends will be with him when he dies as an old man. They will convert about the same time as him. He's the leader of the pack, and half of them will become bishops. Wow. They all got a classical education. They're all, it's not really bright boys. They're bright enough boys, and North Africa could use them. And to me, that's pretty cool. To be surrounded at your deathbed, to be surrounded by the people you went to kindergarten with. All right, I'm going to leave it at that. Um, book five for next week. God bless you.